Hello, entertainers, witticists, and second bananas. I am Brooke Warner, one half of the right-minded team, and I'm here with Grant Faulkner, who sometimes gets to be the first banana, but I sometimes insist on being first banana, so then he's graciously second, and so I'm grateful that we get to share the stage in the way that we do, Grant. Honestly, thank you. Yeah, Brooke, you are first banana today. It's very clear. Not to put too much pressure on you, but you are the first banana, just so our listeners know. Move over, everyone. Go with it. Yeah. Today, we are talking about humor. And the last and only show about humor we did was with Leslie Tenorio. And that show was about mining humor in serious fiction. And this show is not that. And so I want to be clear, because we've had a lot of very funny people on the show, authors who come to mind, who actually made me laugh out loud, actually are Jeanette Walls, Mary Carr. Luis Urrea. Uh, And honestly, that makes me feel lucky, Grant, because there's nothing like getting to hang out, even if it's just for a half hour like this with people who make you laugh out loud. And humor writing is hard. I know we said that on Leslie's show. And a lot of people think they're funny and they're not. So there's the fact that humor is super subjective. And then sometimes I'm working with authors and I'm telling them that something supposedly funny that their writing isn't really working on the page. Like this comes up that people are trying too hard or that maybe the thing is just not landing. And then I've been in the position of giving that feedback. And then the author's just telling me that I don't get them. (laughs) And so sometimes that makes me feel that humor is like the hardest thing in the world to actually execute because it is subjective because people think they're funny and then maybe they are, um, but I'm not getting it or maybe they actually aren't. So I don't know. We're starting today's episode with a pretty big conundrum. Yeah. I think making someone laugh on the page might be harder than making someone cry, to tell you the truth. And I've been intrigued by comedians, especially recently, because I think comedians have access to comment on things in society in a way that other artists don't. And they make themselves super vulnerable on stage in order to do so. And I just admire them so much for taking these risks and being so brave. But I've actually been doing a small project of reading books by comedians. And and I think whether it's Steve Martin or Tina Fey or Mindy Kaling, none of them come close to being the amazing comedians they are in real life mm-hmm. in a book because it's just so hard. And, and I'm not even sure if that type of uproarious humor is possible on the page. You know, right now I'm reading Jerry Seinfeld's Is This Anything, which is a collection of his jokes. And he's he's literally all of his jokes. He writes them down on this like white legal pad. And he's been doing this for like 50 years now. And so he's grouped them decade by decade and written down verbatim. You know, I'm sure he's edited them a little bit. But what's interesting is that they're perfectly fine to read and charming and kind of funny, but they lack his voice and his expression on his face and his timing and his emphasis Mm -hmm. and then the crowd around him. So they're just they're just not really the experience of what it is to like see him perform them. And I think that's one crucial part of humor is that it's so much a part of a larger environment and an experience with others. And that's what makes it really work. And that's what makes it really hard on the page. My gosh. And it just made me, when you said that, I was like, yeah, timing, it's all timing. But I also love that the book is called, Is This Anything? Because maybe we're like, no, <laughs> actually, <laughs> sometimes not. not. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and he'd, be, he'd be the first one to say that's true. Yeah. So, well, today we're talking with Annabelle Gerwich, and she was a comedic actress before she became a humor writer. And I do think that's a good measure for hopefully knowing that you're funny, at least. And she actually was on Seinfeld. So 
like we'll talk to her about that, but that's like real credentials. And her books are all books of essays. So I was thinking she is like the female David Sedaris, which I'm sure is a super annoying thing to say. Uh, But yet, how much do we love to do this? Everyone I know is trying to compare themselves to someone else. So I could say that she's also like the Jewish Samantha Irby or the straight Tignataro. And we can see if people take offense and get angry at me for saying that. But I'm kind of trying on this kind of humor to see how it's going. What do you think, Grant? Hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You didn't hear me laughing? I was laughing in my heart, right? I was laughing silently. I really wish I could tell you to quit publishing for stand-up, Brooke, but I, I just care about you too much to let you do that. Sorry. But I'm going to start calling uh, David Sedaris the Annabelle Gerwich of comedic essayists. I think we need to flip that <laughs> a little bit. And and thinking about books of essays, I think um, that's a great form for humorist writers because you don't want to try to do a stand-up you know, act on the page. I think the the essay is a form or a good way to weave in the humor. And, and I think that's because like, as I mentioned, you know, comedy is such a product of its environment. And so I think as a writer wanting to be funny, you have to think of how to take advantage of the environment on the page, you know, which means thinking about the story itself, you know, and all the storytelling elements, characters, the language, the setting, you know, your stage is the page, in other words, so you have to create the world and add your voice, and then your humor flows from that. And and back to David Sedaris, I think the thing he's brilliant at is presenting this kind of ecosystem of his family in particular, and moving through different situations and their, their quirkiness, you know, and he really makes that alive in a way that he probably... I mean, he reads great. If you hear him read his essays, Mm -hmm. they're hilarious as well. But I think there is something that he's keyed into in terms of doing it on the page. Well, and this is for sure why every humor writer on the planet tries to compare themselves to David Sedaris. And so my advice is if you're pitching yourself as a humor writer, do not do that. (laughs) Do not (laughs) compare yourself to David Sedaris. It doesn't work. Um, And I've seen it a hundred times. You know, anyone who thinks they're funny is like, I'm like David Sedaris. And it's like, oh, it's actually really a high bar. So, (laughs) uh, and of course there are lots of different kinds of humor and other humor writers to compare yourself to. So you can consider the differences in humor among books that are fiction versus essay versus prescriptive nonfiction, you know, and I've read very funny books in all of those genres. I love humor writing. And so I, of course, hate it when someone that professes to be very funny is not. And that's why I think it's just uh, not necessarily a great idea to be the one to compare yourself. And yet you kind of have to when you're selling your book. And actually, I was laughing out loud when I saw that one of Annabelle's reviewers called her a coarser (laughs) Nora Ephron. Mm. I, I love that it's a high compliment, but it's actually funny. Uh, And I agree with that, actually, having read this most recent collection of hers, which is titled You're Leaving When? Uh, Adventures in Downward Mobility. And it's a really resonant book. I mean, ultimately, it's about identity. And she described it in another interview as a post-divorce book, except that it's that in sheep's clothing, because it's not at all framed that way or marketed that way. And so it's more about, you know, being an empty nester and this question of who am I? What am I doing? And the fact that it coincides with divorce kind of makes it a double whammy. But we're going to talk to Annabelle about this because she's yet another writer and maybe they all do, you know, who is mining the serious for the funny. And of course, in humor, the things that are truly funny are often mishaps or circling around tragedy in some way. 
That is true. You know, I think about two interesting definitions of comedy. And one comes from Carol Burnett, who said that comedy was tragedy plus time, uh, which Annabelle uh, talks about as well. And I think that's a brilliant, uh, super brilliant as a concise definition to think about. And then somebody, I think it was Steve Martin, said comedy is polite hostility, which I also think is really brilliant and interesting to think about because a lot of the best comedy critiques our society and carries this edge to it. You're not quite comfortable in your seat while you hear it. And yeah, comedy often comes from a dark place and a sad place. And uh, I've been listening to several comedians' podcasts. Mike Birbiglia's is really interesting, Conan O'Brien's, and then uh, Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars, which is uh, a show uh, with him interviewing other comedians about the craft of comedy. And they all describe the source of their comedy as essentially being misfits early on in, in high school or you know previous to that. And uh, Berbiglia's Netflix show, Thank God for Jokes, is a really great meditation on humor. And I've been watching Dave Chappelle, too, who has a lot of great jokes about joking, essentially, and and and, and uncovering those layers of, of all the uncomfortable material that goes into being humorous. So I recommend those. That's great. Yeah. Jokes about jokes uh, is, is always good. Process. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was thinking about comedians and that maybe they naturally gravitate to the essay form because it's easier to be funny in short form. Mm -hmm. And also there are so many stand-up comedians that then go on to do these essays. And it is something that a short piece, you can wrap your mind, your arms around it, whatever to get to the funny and then you get out. Uh, and the tough part in the publishing world, of course, is that essay collections are ridiculously hard to sell. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't try, you know, if you're funny and you want to do a collection of humor essays, if you're aspiring though, or you just love good humor writing and you want to be a reader, I, I'm going to give a shout out to some of the ladies of comedy who have amazing humor collections. And we have the aforementioned Samantha Irby and Tignataro, Tina Fey, who you mentioned, Mindy Colling, uh, also Jenny Lawson, Lindy West, and Ali Wong come to mind. Uh, so, you know, just so many good books of humor if you just want to get down and dirty and do some reading. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting you mentioned the essay form is one that comedians naturally gravitate to because this Seinfeld book I'm reading of all of his little, whatever, his his bits, they, they are kind of like miniature essays, you know, like he, he does start and tell a story that's somewhat personal that ends with this punchline. And they're just very, very short essays in essence. So I know Annabelle teaches humor. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, if she can help our listeners be the next David Sedaris. <laughs> so let's see what she has to say after this short break. Grant, one of the things that's fun about what we do is that we get to hear from listeners who are doing other fun and important creative projects. So this week, I got an email from Mason Angle about his upcoming documentary, The Books Tour, which is about his cross-country trip visiting 50 indie bookstores in 50 days and what he learned along the way. And I knew we had to share it with our listeners as soon as I saw the trailer. But first, I sent it to you. So what did you think? I loved it. I uh, was so intrigued. It's so fun. It's so interesting. And it's true. We, we only got a preview of the trailer at this point. Just all of you will have access to Mason's story highlights the, you know, the value and importance of independent bookstores. And if we want indie bookstores to stay around, we really need to support them. So no shopping at Amazon, folks. Support your local indie bookstore. 
Yeah, I thought it was fascinating that he started out being like, yeah, I'm going to go around to all these bookstores, but just continue to point people to Amazon. But then his thinking on this really shifts as he starts to make the rounds. And it's kind of like a coming into an awareness of how problematic that mindset was. And I also really appreciate that he shared his own awakening, because we have to support other retailers who are not Amazon or else we are going to end up with only Amazon. And that's not good for your neighborhood or the writing and reading community. So listeners, go check out the Bookstore site at thebookstorefilm.com. That's the bookstore, not the bookstore. <laughs> Did I get that right, Brooke? It's a, it's a tongue twister. My gosh. The Bookstore Film. Yes. Tour, as in T-O-U-R <laughs> film.com. And that will tell you more about the documentary, which is out now. Yeah, and he also has a lot of resources on there for how you can support indie bookstores. And this is a really important effort. A thriving book publishing and author community relies on a healthy ecosystem of booksellers. So thank you, Mason, and we hope you'll all support him. And by extension, indie bookstores, you can check out, again, that URL that is a little bit hard to say, thebookstourfilm.com. Tour. Tour. Tour, not store. Welcome back, everybody. Today's guest is Annabelle Gerwich, and she is an actress, activist, and author of five books, including the New York Times bestseller and Thurber Prize finalist, I See You Made an Effort. She's written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, and others. Annabelle was also the longtime co-host of Dinner and a Movie on TBS and a regular commentator on NPR. I think this is a fun fact, Annabelle. You've been an actress whose credits include Seinfeld, Murphy Brown, Boston Legal, and Dexter. And you've been profiled about a thousand places and you co-host the Tiny Victories podcast. And right now you are working on adapting this latest book, You're Leaving When, for HBO, all of which is amazing. Welcome. Oh, thank you. You know, it, it, that it's just a lot of years, right? It's a lot of years <laughs> of, uh, if I did that all in one year, that would be, that would be something. Yeah, well, it's all of it. And I was noting you're an activist, an actress, an author. So the AAA combo right there, which is pretty fun. But since this is a writing podcast, I did want to note that I had a fangirl moment over the Seinfeld appearance. And I, <laughs> I imagine you get that a lot. It's, it's really pretty funny because in that episode, I spend a lot of time in a coma. And so <laughs> being, you know, having the fangirl moment over a performance that you're giving in a coma is, is a little odd, but you know, people, I, Seinfeld is, has occupies a particular place in our uh, cultural landscape. So I'm just so glad that I was a part of it, even though I, I'm in a coma for much of it. <laughs> no, that happened. Well, tell us about uh, these identities. I mean, how have you balanced these and or is it just like you said, it's been a lot of years and now you're a full time writer? How do you identify these days? Well, you know, I, I think I'll always be a, a theater person at heart. You know, I mean, that was sort of my first identity and driving force to get up every day and to the way I wanted to interact in the world and the whole collaborative process of, of making theater was, it's just sort of my, it's in my 
you know, DNA practically. But I, I think my, my turn to writing just it had to do with I, I just had a tremendous amount of opinions that were not welcome <laughs> as for an actress, you know, just too many, too opinionated an actress. And so the writing just took over at a certain point. And then, I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to act was a love of language and a love of what uh, a play could be do. So I, I always loved what writers could do. And then it just went, once I, once I started, it just became, you know, the, I turned that same obsession, uh, sort of obsessive quality of um, mastering a text as an actor into writing sentences. I feel the same way, Annabelle. As a writer, I know you had a bit of a hard time finding a home for your most recent book, You're Leaving When. And it's a collection of personal essays, which is already tough to sell. And then you heard from publishers, the typical refrain, in your case, your readers don't want this kind of book from you. And for a lot of writers we talk to, there's a variation of that feedback that's similar, like there's no audience for this, which really means they don't know how to reach the audience. So I was wondering if you can talk about what you did with this feedback. Well, yeah, you know, I think that there's all of us who also started writing, uh, got our starts in, I mean, I started at NPR, but then, you know, like many people wrote for magazines for many years, along with more, you know, hard news, news sources. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, we saw this, you know, takeover of the listicle, Right. And this sort of drumbeat of, you know, women's magazines in particular with, you know, the the kinds of things that are eye catching for uh, for magazines, you know, the five, five top new orgasms, I don't, you know, whatever, <laughs> like that kind of thing, like this kind of. Have to click on that. <laughs> gotta click, yeah, you know, how to, I, I can't, you know, it's just maddening those kinds of writing that has sort of taken took over for a, a while. And um, I, so the feedback that I had gotten for this material, the original version of this material was you just, you can't write about economic, being economically challenged. This just does not, women don't want to read that. My, a big part of my readership is along with my dinner and movie fans and comedy fans. It's, but it, you know, it's primarily women. And I was told, you know, women just don't want to read this. It has to be more aspirational. And I, I think that many of us have heard this kind of thing. What the message I had always gotten was this was taboo. You just, you can write about your mental health problems. You write about addiction. You can, you know, uh, th those, those always find a, a home, you know, with people. But in terms of a narrative, writing about financial stakes in nonfiction, and particularly putting yourself out there as someone who's had economic struggles, I got the message that not only you know, as a, as a person in society, is it taboo? I think that's a, people would rather tell you about their erectile dysfunction than that they're having economic problems. But I think in publishing, what was communicated to me was, you know, you got, it's got to have a lift. You don't want to be a bummer and people want your things to be funny. And I, well, of course I, if it's not funny, I'm, I'm dead, you know, really it's, I, this is, this is how I, 
uh, like to communicate, but it was really a problem. And it, it really caused some soul searching on my part because I really felt strongly about this. And I felt strongly about it because I feel like it reflects the time we were living in. You know, I I really resonate with what you're saying. Obviously, I come out of the publishing industry and there's always this aspirational thing that people are trying to say, like, don't have a downer title. Obviously, your stuff is funny, but it's also tragic. Uh, And so I wanted to ask you about having a cohesive thread for a collection of essays more generally. And this book is as much about identity and middle age and parenting and post-divorce as it is downward mobility. So how did you think about making a collection of essays cohesive around that theme specifically? And and also just generally, why did that matter? Yeah. So first of all, uh, you know, in, in terms of publishing essay collections, right, this is what I do. And it's actually what really interests me. I, I just, I love the essay. I, I've, I've tried. And at one point, this book I had in a more narrative form of, you know, the year of downward mobility, right? I mean, I, you know, when you're struggling with a book and it, you, you write five versions of it, right? But I go back to the essay because for me, the essay allows me to not only write memoir material, but my interest is also in cultural commentary. So I feel like in, in an essay form, uh, I can I can do those two things. And also, I feel like it's a good organizing principle as a writer. What makes a book for me is when I can see a thread throughout all the stories, and then it gives me a way of organizing which stories belong in this collection, which stories I'm going to have to save for something else. And so I knew the book was going to be about identity and this shift in identity, but it was all bracketed by the experience of downward mobility. So all the stories, as much as they're about identity, they had to also, and some are admittedly more tangential to the idea of downward mobility, but they all have to check that box in order to fit in. So even a story um, that I wanted to tell about the main theme of the story, which is like, for instance, a story about um, my child's changing gender identity and being the parent of someone who is now a non-binary person and, and shifting my relationship to my child and trying to, you know, understand that there is a note of downward mobility in that story in that there is a very, very redemptive quality to Generation uh, Z. And I and I do do some redeeming of Generation Z in this book because I, I happen to love Gen Z. I think they're super creative and inventive and imagining a new world in terms of gender and interaction with other humans. But that genuine connection to downward mobility in that story allowed that story to fit in. Without it, I I would have had to cut that. And the majority of the chapters 
relate even more directly to the subtitle. So, I mean, for me, it, it, that helps me as a writer in always, if I'm always answering that question, how does this story fit into this box, this container box, the titles, you know, is, is my container box. Um, and if it doesn't, then uh, there were a bunch of stories that I had worked on that I thought were going to be in this collection for years that I, you know, that are on the shelf. Hmm. Well, Annabelle, you've used your backstory as a foundation for a lot of your humor and you're Jewish and you grew up in Mobile, Alabama, which is basically automatic fodder for some humor <laughs> stories, I imagine. Yeah. So yeah. I was wondering, how did you find your way to humor? Uh, I found my way to humor completely accidentally. I only came to humor through uh, that uh, tragedy plus time equals comedy. I, mm -hmm. I I didn't really think in terms of humor until my child, now 23, was born with this constellation of birth defects uh, with the acronym Vactoral. It was so shocking. And so I overnight, I became an atheist. I'm like, there's just no reason. I mean, as if there weren't enough reasons to become an atheist, in my opinion, in the world, or if you're looking, if you're looking at cause and effect of like, if there was a God, would that God do this? I mean, you go down that road, it's endless. But when it really hit home, uh, God, that sounds so selfish. When it really hit home, and God disappeared overnight. And I think I I just thought, oh, this is so ridiculous what's happened here that um, I, I, everything just sort of switched for me in terms of, you know, comedy as being my best coping mechanism. And, you know, comedy is like the last resort for people whose um, uh, medication isn't working well enough. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, gotta go to comedy. <laughs> Annabelle, you you mentioned both Vactoral, I think I'll tell people because I actually have a cousin who's almost exactly the same age as your child uh, who, who was born with that as well. And so it stands for vertebral, anal, cardiac, tracheal, esophageal, renal, and limb. And it's a constellation of birth defects. And I intimately know how... Uh, how big a deal that syndrome is, especially when they're little and they have to have so many surgeries. Um, and then Ezra, your child is also non-binary, as you mentioned. Grant and I were talking recently because his son is a recent graduate from high school and was telling me, you know, that half of his son's friends are on the gender fluid and non-binary continuum. So to your point, I mean, it's definitely a thing. So you have like Vactral on the one hand, which is really rare and gender fluidity, which is really common. And I was just really thinking about these tough subjects that you're grappling with. Um, and then being a mom, I resonated. And you teach writing. So I, I wanted to ask you about like demystifying the process of comedy writing, because neither of those things are actually really funny. <laughs> but read, as you said, I mean, time plus, you know, just living right equals, you know, how do you do it? How do you demystify it? Yeah. So, uh, so I, I do, I'll, t I teach a class usually at least once a year, um, at, on, uh, comedy punch up and looking for what I consider comedic opportunities in your writing. So for me, there is, I don't want to say it's a formula, but what makes things funny? So for me, one of the things that makes things funny are expectations versus reality. That's just a tried and true 
comedy generator. That's one way to look for humor in your writing. Then there are comedic runners, you know, there's the comedy rule of three. There's something about repetition of something that can sometimes generate comedy. Not always, but these are sort of things I'll say, I try, okay, here's your writing. Let's look and see where there might be some comedy uh, here. Sometimes, a, 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 you know, the oxymoron can be a, a comedy generator. What is uh, something you're describing here? Is there anything surprise? Again, an expectation, I guess. But uh, you know, that's that is another way of uh, looking at the looking at the specifics of the language you're using. I, I'm curious because your your story is the first book, I guess, that I read or knew about that includes a story about the pandemic, and. You know, there's going to be a lot of stories about the pandemic throughout yes. our lifetimes, actually. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're a trendsetter there. Congratulations. <laughs> um, <laughs> but really, my question is about the ending this collection of your story in a muted Zoom room. No one can hear you scream. I just wanted to get a sense of how, you know, did that feel important in the collection on a pandemic story and why you decided to include it? Yeah. So I was editing this book when um, <clears throat> the pandemic hit and just given the timeline of when I knew the book would come out, I felt like, and, and as I was editing, there was a limit to, I knew there would be a limit to what I could include, uh, just in terms of how quickly I could write and really think out, you know, uh, how, how do we process this event while we're living it? But there was this one aspect of it, and it was this uh, this Zoom that I created for writers to meet up in every day that had the sort of facsimile of a coffee shop. So it was a kind of interaction that we created where it was it was incredibly intimate because we're all together on those little Zoom boxes and writing. But we were quietly together and we weren't inter- talking about our days and it was this, but passing these hours together in each other's company and in some sense, buoyed on by this group setting. And um, somehow I felt like I had to reflect that kind of uh, adaptation to this isolation of that moment in the book because adaptation is a part of the theme of the book. In terms of the theme of identity, I really wanted to address the idea of what I try to make the distinction of, of adaptation versus resilience. So I feel like women are very often put into a resilience, what I call resilience prison. Take two resiliences and call me in the morning or take two reinvent and call me in the morning. It's like reinvention prison. And I felt like what I have had to cultivate in a time when many identities fell away from me was a kind of adaptation to a new normal. And I felt the adaptation to the new normal was something the pandemic was bringing out. So there was this uh, similar theme of pandemic adaptability that just, there was no resilience. Oh, I'm, I'm not going back to the office now. Uh, my social life has got to adapt in a new way. And, and that reflected so much the theme of the book. I included that story. And then uh, there were all these mishaps with that Zoom. And so that 
adds this it's a humorous story but i i felt it should end on the note of in a mute that's the last line in the book uh, in a muted zoom no one can hear you scream because mm-hmm. <laughs> there's you know ultimately you know there's the sense of of being trapped and mm-hmm. and and the fear of never being heard again i mean that uh, <laughs> there's one line i write about about the the very small amount of agency that i felt i had during the first few months of the pandemic was the ability to mute people congratulations on this book annabelle oh thank you we will be right back with today's book talk Well, for today's book pick, I'm choosing More Than a Woman by Caitlin Morin. It's been a full 10 years since Morin's mega bestseller, How to Be a Woman, which I loved then for its hilarious take on feminism and the patriarchy. A few things. Morin is British, and so I'm sorry, but I really do think most British writers are naturally funnier than Americans. And this book is also about her life as a middle-aged woman, and she's exactly the same age as me. So, you know, in these 10 years that have passed, she's written a very different kind of book than that first book because of older, wiser, and all that good stuff. So I highly recommend it if you are 40 plus. This book covers questions like whether feminists can have Botox. Why isn't there such a thing as mom bod, or as she would say, mum bod? Why do hangovers suddenly hurt so much? Has feminism gone too far? Uh, Will your to-do list ever end? And who's taking care of the children? So, you know, basically things that appeal to middle-aged feminist moms, (laughs) which is probably why I loved it. And I feel compelled to point out uh, that the humor is subjective, but I think she's hilarious. Uh, Before you try to attempt humor on the page, seek out funny books, let yourself laugh. It is very healing. And then, you know, see how it goes. It's all in the execution. Thank you, Brooke. And I thought of a new tagline for our show while interviewing Annabelle. Right-minded adventures in writing mobility. Um, <laughs> I love it. Change it immediately. Maybe downward mobility too, but that's just <laughs> part of being a writer. But reminder, Right-Minded is a weekly podcast. We love coming to you every week and talking about writing with you. So please download it on Apple Podcasts or basically wherever you get your podcasts on the internet. And we love getting love. So if you want to give us a little review, we'd love that. Uh, we'll even read mediocre reviews. Tell us the truth. Be authentic. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>